You know, I've already talked about Fight Club in a sermon, so why not Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, too? I mean, I don't really actually have a lot to say about the movie beyond that it's a great critique of escapism during the Nixon years and the cultural fallout of the Vietnam War. But there is a scene that I did want to bring up where the supporting character played in the movie by Benicio Del Toro, where they're in the middle of an ether binge and they stumble into this old Las Vegas casino called Circus Circus. And they're on a bar that is literally in the middle of a merry-go-round. And he begins to say something. He says, this place is beginning to get to him. I believe I'm getting the fear. And that's a little line has been racing through my mind a lot during the quarantine stay-at-home orders. I feel like staying at home is actually beginning to get to me, and I think I'm beginning to get the fear. And that probably wasn't a great intro, but here we go. As we continue where we were from last week, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in a fashion that we are very familiar with. The this text is traditionally read on Palm Sunday. Before Jesus can enter into Jerusalem, a Jewish prophecy must be fulfilled, and we must read Zechariah 9 to understand. A pronouncement, the Lord's, the Lord's word is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place, for the city of Aram and all the tribes of Israel belong to the Lord. Hamath also borders on it. Tyr and Sidon, indeed, each is exceedingly wise. Tyr built a forest for her, built a fortress for herself. She piled up silver like dust and gold like mud in the streets. But the Lord will take her possessions away and knock her wealth into the sea. She will be devoured by fire. Ashan will look and be afraid. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron, because her hope has dried up. The king will perish from Gaza. Ashkelon won't be inhabited. An illegitimate child will dwell in Ashud. I will eliminate the pride of the Philistines. I will remove bloody food from his mouth and pieces of unclean food from between his teeth. He will be a survivor who belongs into our God. He will be a chieftain like in Judah. Ekron will be a Jebusite. I will encamp before my house as a guard against anyone departing or returning. A slave driver will no longer pass through against them, for I have seen you with my eyes. And this is the part that is the prophecy starting in 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His rule will stretch from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Moreover, by the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, prisoners of hope. Moreover, declare today that I will return double to you. Indeed. I will bend Judah as a bow. I will fit it with Ephraim. Zion, I will rouse your sons against your sons. Greece, I will make you a warrior's sword. The Lord will appear above them. His arrow will go forth light lightning. The Lord God will blow the horn. You will march forth on the stormy winds of the south. The Lord of heavenly forces will protect them. They will devour and subdue like sling, sling stones. They will drink, mumbling like ones who have had wine. They will be filled like a bowl, like the corners of the altar. The Lord God, their uh, the Lord their God will deliver them on the day as a flock of his people. 
They will be the jewels in his crown dotting the land. What is his goodness and what is his beauty? Grain will make his young men flourish, so too his young woman, so too wine his young woman. This is why it's great importance in knowing the footnotes of prophecies that comes around Christ. As you read through that prophecy, we can see how the people yelling, why people are yelling Hosanna in the streets. This prophecy reads of the breaking of a nations and the strength of the Lord as a people who are being enslaved to Rome by their social status. When we read this prophecies, God's justice was finally entering into Jerusalem and God's chosen people would return to their place of perceived power. They will be jewels in the Lord's crown. So that is why they call Hosanna, which means Savior, or the one who has come to save. They cry out that the one who has come to finally break the bows has arrived. The Son of David has come. The Son of Man, the Messiah, has arrived on a cult. And I know that I'm belaboring this point, but it's important to establish this importance in the narrative of the gospel. We go from the messianic secret in Mark, where Jesus is trying to hide his identity and let his actions speak louder than any title bestowed upon him, but now is riding into Jerusalem with titles being thrown at him. If we were new readers of this gospel, this would be quite a transformation from a man born to a virgin to a stable, to a healer, to a restorer, to a rabbi, to becoming a cultural disruptor, and now becoming the Messiah. But it wouldn't be the gospel with a lesson on intention versus how we implemented what the Lord has given us. And today, we have another Marcan sandwich, and this time, it's fig-flavored. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and his first act, it seems, is to condemn a fig tree that is not bearing figs. Now, Jesus is not the most patient gardener in this situation. In fact, he gets a little bit hangry, which is when you're so hungry that you become angry at the slightest things. See, Jesus was very hungry, and from far off, he saw this tree, he thought this tree would have food. But as he gets closer, he realized that, that it has no fruit. And then he curses the tree to never grow fruit again. Even though figs were completely out of season, Jesus still seems it fit to curse it. And it seems like this is an act of hangry to me. And for me, actually, it does humanize Jesus a little bit. Because I mean, hey, Jesus, I've been there too. But in order to get a larger understanding of this action, we must continue on with the narrative. Jesus goes into the temple and sees that the temple is full of money changers and people who are willing to sell animals to be sacrificed at the temple. Part of the temple experience at the time of Jesus was that according to the Levitical law, you had to offer different sacrifices based off of the different sins you had committed. The larger the sin, the larger the animal that would need to be sacrificed. The money changers were there in the temple because people would come all over to sacrifice and they would need to convert their foreign coins into a currency that the, of the people that were selling the animals. There's this little ecosystem or little market that begins to develop inside of the temple. 
money changers would charge a markup to exchange for the currency and some of that markup would go to the temple priests for allowing them to be money changers inside of the temple and then you would also have those who were selling animals would mark up their animals because you know if you're needing an animal to get your sins forgiven you're going to pay what it takes to have that happen and in that markup the temple priest would also get a cut for allowing those certain vendors inside of the temple as well so it is to say that there is probably a little bit of an economy of preying on people who are just coming to pray and have their sins forgiven and the priest got paid off of all of that and when jesus sees this his hangry that we had earlier turns into more of a righteous anger. This is where we get one of the most interesting bits of scripture that it seems to be always taken out of context and has been used to justify some pretty heinous things in the name of Jesus, which is actually kind of ironic since what Jesus is angry about is people using the teachings of scripture to justify heinous things like profiteering upon those who had gathered to worship him. What Jesus is angry about is an injustice that is happening in the very place of worship, the gathering place of God, where we go to gather before God. What is happening is the money changers and the people offering animals to be sacrificed are taking advantage of the poor, those who could not afford to bring their own animals, which is what the law intended. It was supposed to be a personal sacrifice to atone for sins. And also systems set up to prey upon the foreigner, the one who had to travel far to bring in, to come in. Jesus is not angry about what is happening out in the world, but rather what is happening right inside of his own temple. And he is not angry about everything, but he's actually angry about a very specific thing that is happening when people are being taken advantage of, when the most vulnerable who are attempting to come to God are abused or taken advantage of. And I say that this has been misused because you find a lot of Christians trying to justify their own anger because, well, Jesus did it, right? He threw over tables so I should be able to be angry as well. I want to warn you against this type of logic. Jesus is angry here for a very specific reason, and not just angry in general. His anger is directed at those who are manipulating God's law to benefit themselves and not just in not just being angry at anyone in general. In fact, the only time we have heard such harshness before in the Gospel of Mark is when Jesus was talking about the Pharisees and he said that this was the unforgivable sin when they were using their scriptures, the, the God's law, to manipulate it for their own ends. Jesus really has anger for those who use the goodness of God and manipulate it to benefit themselves. Jesus uses that righteous anger and he does something about it. Jesus doesn't let them just see, doesn't let himself just see the anger. He does not just sit there and let the vulnerable continue to be hurt. He gets up and he starts flipping over these tables. It's also important to note that this is not the violent, uh, this is not a violent, an act of violence in itself. And it's certainly not a violent act towards any individual. He flips over tables and he moves people out of the temple. Please hear me on this body of Christ. Do not use this act to justify any violence against any individual or people group. This is not the intent of the gospel. 
This is not the intent of this act, to ever have violence against individuals or people groups. This is not what Jesus' intention is. And Jesus is actually fighting this idea uh, when he does what he is doing. So after this outburst of emotion, they leave the temple. And the disciples notice that the fig tree's roots from earlier are now drying up. And they begin this bit, uh, they bring this up to Jesus, and Jesus completes this Marcane sandwich by explaining what has happened. We had the fig tree cursing, and then the disciples noticing the fig tree at the end, making the two parts of the bread while the temple act as the middle. Jesus makes some bold statements on what you can do, which is moving mountains and casting them into seas. And I believe this serves as a statement about the systematic evils that have invaded the temple. And how we are Christians, our followers of Christ, are called to move against those systems. Another important thing to note here is there are parallel in between these bold statements and the statements made in the previous chapter about wealth and power, where Jesus says that it's um, a camel to move through the eye of a needle, and the disciples reply, that is impossible. They would have the same reaction when Jesus says, if you, cast, if you ask a mountain to move and cast itself into a sea, they would say, surely that is impossible. And these impossible statements, these are impossible statements by human standards, but are made possible by the power of God. What Jesus is stating here is that though these things seem so impossible, with God it is possible. When we are faced with impossible tasks of dismantling systems of oppression, Jesus says it is possible with God. God can curse the roots of a system, but we must ask. And we must act as well. And I also want to say, this doesn't, when we ask God, this doesn't seem slow, solely up to systems of oppression, but it also seems for individual desires as well. God, Jesus, when he's making this statement, turns it to a very direct statement where it seems to be about individuals' desires as well. But there is something tagged on to that. When Jesus says that you go to pray, which you would be doing at the temple when you offer these sacrifices, it says that in order for you to really be forgiven, what you would be offering these sacrifices for, you must really learn to forgive others as well. And I think this is an important part of dismantling systematic evils that oppress people is we need to learn to forgive those who might do evil to others. This is not to say that there is no consequences for those who enact evil. Don't hear what I am not saying. What I am saying is holding on to forgiveness will now allow us as the body of Christ to move forward. What I am saying is that right after Jesus gets done cleaning out the temple, flipping over tables, he talks about forgiving people. There is something here for us to understand that we still need to be praying for those who persecute us, for those who we might perceive as our enemies, so that we may find forgiveness for ourselves. And then right after this, you have the flip side of this, the chief priest come to Jesus and saying, who gives you such authority to do these things? And what exactly are the chief priests talking about? Well, you have two things that have just happened. He has cleaned out the temple, which has taken away the chief priests' a power of making money. And he has also 
then advocated for the prayer of forgiveness and being forgiven, which was once again reserved for the chief priest to be able to do to forgive the people. So it seems like Jesus has just taken away both an economic resource from these people and then also some job duties as well. And they're kind of asking Jesus, who has given you the authority to make such a decree, to make such a change to the system? And it seems like what Jesus did when he overthrew those tables, is he started overthrowing a whole system of the temple. He offers a riddle back to the chief priests, and he kind of traps them in this um, kind of logic trap, uh, basically saying that in order for them to acknowledge what Jesus is doing and what authority he has, they have to say either he's from heaven, which means he's the son of God, the Messiah, or if he say he's from earth, then he's the son of David, who is also the Messiah. And they were trapped, and they knew it, so they could not give an answer. And I think like this little bit of insight begins to, under, like for us, understand what happens when Jesus enters into temple. He's knowing fully divine and fully human, that mixture that has the divinity and the humanity mixed together, coming in to overthrow a system that has begun to inhabit the kingdom of God and making it clean and declaring that there's a better way and a new way for us to live. A system that does not take advantage of the foreigner and the poor. A system that that last shall be first and the first that shall be last. It's a system that begins to open up forgiveness, not being reserved to just chief priests, but to anyone who will be willing to forgive others. This act sets up what's about to happen. A trial, a crucifixion, a death, and a resurrection. And I think that for us right now, this begins the end of our human Bible study of Mark. And there's been so much that has gone into what we've gotten up into this point. But I do think that we have now began to say, we can now say that we've begun to see Christ's missions partially. And what's about to happen is we're going to be able to finally see the kingdom fully. I am excited to enter into this last phase of the, uh, of the human Bible study of Mark. And I'm excited to see how Jesus will continue to open our eyes to the changing of the systems that we have put in place in him revealing the true nature of the kingdom of God. And also, please remember to wash your hands. God bless.